What's the brain stem involved in? Anything important? Oh, all the uh, <laughs> all the vegetative uh, processes. That's right. Something to do with like being awake and breathing, breathing, and having heart, cardiovascular capacity, your heart, and all sorts of stuff. So, a pretty mm. important part of your brain. Mm. Um, so yeah, so if, if you squeeze your brain stem, that's bad for you. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this week I'm joined by Graham, who is um, currently googling on his phone to look up. Yeah, <laughs> doing he's doing research for this podcast as we speak. Yeah, thanks for inviting <laughs> me back. Um, so this week we thought we'd do uh, something on uh, a topic which springs up occasionally. Uh, occasionally you get a phone call uh, from people from colleagues who work in other hospitals, and uh, or, or we get patients come through here and come through our clinics. Um, What's the topic, Graham? Uh, the topic is Arnold Chiari malformation type one. That's right. Yep. <coughs> and uh, I did read somewhere that it actually you should actually just say Chiari malformation, but I can't remember why. <laughs> I know. Either way, that's what people. That's how people know it. I know there was doctors Arnold and Chiari, and there was another doctor who malformation. Po- <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> oh. Who potentially named it before those two? All oh, right, yeah, it's and, stolen. And they're all pathologists. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, my money would have been on pathologist or radiologist. Yep. Yep. All right. So, um, any news before we start this really, it was quite a dry topic, but I think it'd be quite interesting to, to listeners, well, those of us who um, put needles in people's backs. Oh, um, no, it's not a dry topic at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, a source hopefully, of... Hopefully c- when we do our epidural, it'll be dry. Yeah, dry. <laughs> yeah, dry tap. Um, <laughs> it's a source of... Uh, Controversy, I would say, and um, opinion, yeah. and um, and conflict sometimes. Yep. So um, we can maybe we'll have a chat at the end of the uh, podcast. But let's get into it. So uh, <coughs> I've put together a um, hypothetical case. So you get a, you get a phone call. Um, you're working in a like in a, I don't know a reasonable size obstetric unit, and you're uh, the anaesthetist. You get a phone call from the obstetrician who says uh, that they've got a term patient who's coming in for an induction of labour this morning. And they, the patient's uh, mentioned to the obstetrician that she had an MRI four years ago after she had a uh, motor vehicle accident and she got like a bang on the head and the neck. And um, she was told that they had found something called an Arnold Chiari malformation. And she, she passed it on to the obstetrician. And he's not really sure what that means, but he's asking you, um, she's, she's keen, to not feel lots of pain, and uh, what do you think? Is it is it okay for her to have an epidural? What so? <clears throat> it's not an uncommon co- um, request. Yeah, so I've had phone calls from colleagues in other hospitals who who had that phone call themselves, mm. and they were like, I don't know, what what should, what should I do? Mm. I mean, first you've got to define what the problem is. So, Arnold Chiari malformations um, come in forms other than type one. Yeah, uh, and so I, I understand that. Uh, should we go back and just define what is an Arnold Chiari? Yes. I reckon we've lost half the listeners who are like, what the hell are they talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to tell what is an Arnold Chiari malformation? So, Top one. so it, it's a, a malformation of the um, uh, hindbrain such that it uh, occupies a volume lower than the cranium. 
Yeah, so I'm you just going to actually read a description I mean, from, from in front of us. So yes. It's just, um, so it's their congenital anomalies of the cere- in which the cerebellum herniates through the foramen magmen, displacing the lower pons and medulla, which are part of the brainstem. Yeah. So the cerebellum is that sort of squiggly part of your brain, which is involved in motor function, you know, moving your arms and legs and controlling coordination, uh, which hangs off the bottom of your brain. Yeah, but it usually sits in the occiput. Yeah, so it sits in the occiput, sort mm. of down the bottom of your the bottom of your skull. But um, it's just right above the, where the, the brainstem goes down into the into the spinal canal. Yes, and uh, it's thought to be a congenital malformation of where it doesn't things don't grow or form properly, and it's all, it's tight and everything's getting squeezed. Yes, and the, the the bottom part of the cerebellum actually goes through into the top part of the spinal canal. Yes. And yep. it sometimes is symptomatic. <coughs> uh, yeah. And so I've been involved in the past in providing anaesthesia for patients to have a decompression of yeah, their right. um, foramen magnum yep. uh, and cerebellum. Yeah, that, that was a paediatric case. That was a paediatric yep. case. Uh, however, for some patients, the diagnosis is made uh, incidentally. As an adult or something like that. As an adult, or um, sometimes as investigations of symptoms, yeah, which may or may not relate to the presence of that congenital, yeah, um, abnormality. So things like a, a CT or MR of the brain for headache investigations, for example. Yep. So. Um that moves on. So, so what sort of what, why do people worry? What, why is it a bad thing if the bottom of the cerebellum is protruding into the into the space and, and can is squeezed up against the top of the brainstem? Yeah. So it can cause problems um, for patients who aren't pregnant uh, or aren't requiring the involvement of an obstetric anaesthetist because it can uh, impact upon the flow of cerebrospinal fluid yep. from the um, brain down into the spinal cord yep. and into the um, um, subarachnoid space. Yep. Uh, so usually they, can cause yeah, usually they are connected and um, there's no pressure gradient. So the pressure in your CSF in your brain is the same as that in your, around your spine, isn't it? That's correct. Yeah. Although it's under the influence of gravity. Of gravity, yeah. yeah. But it should, the, the pressure is transmitted freely. Yes. Because it should move freely. The fluid moves freely. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, if there is obstruction to flow, it can cause uh, damage to structures. Yeah, so it can push the cerebellum down into the canal and can, can squeeze the brainstem. What's the brainstem involved in? Anything important? Oh, all the uh, <laughs> all the vegetative uh, processes. That's right. Something to do with like being awake and breathing, breathing, and having heart, cardiovascular capacity, your heart, and all sorts of stuff. So, a pretty mm. important part of your brain. Mm. Um, so yeah, so if, if you squeeze your brainstem, that's bad for you. Um, um, and, and, and also the pressure gradient can reflect in changes down what is called the uh, canal of the spinal cord or the canal of the um, brainstem, yep. causing dilatation of that area. And that can lead to damage either to neurons or to axons. Yeah, so you can get this fluid-filled cavity in the middle of your spinal cord, which can sometimes go up into your brainstem as well, called a syrinx, syrinx or syringomyelia or something. Syringobulbia, syringomyelia. Yeah, and that can, uh, if that um, fluid-filled cavity sort of expands whenever you strain or if there's some sort of pressure gradient, it can sort of damage the neurons and axons and you can get sensory and motor 
damage yes. to, to your so that your nervous system stop. You know, it's a bit like having sort of symptoms that you get with strokes and things like that. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Neurological changes, yeah. which but are not not ideal. No. And but yeah. when when women are in labour, uh, CSF pressure is known to increase with uterine contractions yeah. and also with um, processes like um, valsalvering. So yeah, so put, trying to push the baby push out. Push the baby out, yeah. yeah so don't so no, if anyone's ever watched a woman give birth in the second stage or, you know, uh, trials and theatre and things like that, there's a huge amount of pressure generated in their chest and abdomen when they're pushing as hard as they can. Uh, so if that, strands, if that causes um, herniation or pressure gradients in your brainstem, because of this condition, that's theoretically a bad thing as well. Could could cause um, tonsillar herniation or extension of a syrinx, make it bigger. Yes. But so those it, are all but, the but but at the same time, does it? <laughs> yeah, that's all theoretical. It, it yeah. is, but also uh, then as obstetric anaesthetists, where we're asked to provide uh, central neuraxial analgesia or anaesthesia, yep. we potentially could do some harm to these patients. That's right. Yeah. As well, because the CSF doesn't flow normally, so there are. It's possible that the CSF around the brain um, is may at a higher pressure. Yeah, at a higher pressure may not be communicating freely with the CSF around the spine. And mm. if we put a needle into the spinal fluid, which we do on intentionally, De- deliberately, we're doing the spinal, yeah, yep. well, albeit with a very small needle, mm. or accidentally with a TUI needle when we're doing an epidural, which is a very big needle, and if some of that fluid drains out of the um, Around the, around the spine, then there's a pressure gradient, and that that can cause like um, or could cause um, herniation or syrinx formation, a bit like the, the valsalva maneuver we we're talking about. Yes. So that could cause you know nerve dam- you know damage as well. So that's the theoretical risk. Exactly. Ah, oh, Jesus, mm. sounds scary. Um, it maybe does I did sound the wrong, scary. I should have done dermatology. <laughs> <laughs> that can't cause brainstem herniation. <laughs> when you when you biopsy a melanoma, <laughs> all right. <laughs> if, if you biopsy properly, <laughs> yeah, it has to be quite a deep biopsy. Mm. Anyway, so what's the evidence that this is a real thing, though? Um, because um, so those are the little things we're worried about. That seems pretty reasonable uh, reasonable to worry about that. But then, um, I guess the the ext- one extreme view is that anyone who's been diagnosed with having one of these malformations you just refuse outright to stick a needle on their back at all and that means that um, they have to use things like nitrous oxide and morphine or opioids for pain relief if they have a baby in labour Remifentanil PC Remifentanil PCIAs and that doesn't I guess remove the risk of the valsalvering and pushing in the second stage because you know obviously that that, that's still going to happen if they're having a vaginal delivery Mm. Um, or if they have a um, caesarean, they have to have a GA, which has some risks as well, you know, aspiration, airway, loss of the airway, um, anaphylaxis to a muscle relaxants, things like that. Mm. So there's no such thing as a free lunch. No, there isn't. <laughs> Unless it's sponsored by a drug company, which is not allowed anymore. <laughs> yeah, haven't had one of those for a long time. <laughs> so it's not actually, that isn't free either, because mm. they're just trying to make you sell their drug. Um, or we're getting distracted. Right, so I think it's one of those. Talk about. I, I think yeah. the question that we want to answer doesn't have an easy answer. No, but there has been some effort by different clinicians to try and um, 
look retrospectively at the outcomes of patients yeah, who have right. unalkyari malformation type 1 and also um, there is um, some efforts to come up with a scoring or grading system to try yeah, to guide right. us in our practice. So I don't think anyone's ever going to be able to do like a, some sort of clinical trial, but people have tried to gather as much data and um, real-world sort of experience together as they can to sort of give us a bit of an idea about a pragmatic way to approach this. Yes. Uh, and um, shall we go through? So, so one uh, one author is also, has also has published like a um, what I, th I think you you pointed you told me about this guy Dr. Gali. It's what is yes. quite a useful way of trying to clarify the severity of it because obviously uh, there's some people who walk around and who have absolutely no symptoms. You know, they might maybe even they go to the gym and do bench presses and fell salva frequently when they're passing wind or <laughs> haven't had enough veggies for a while yes. um, <laughs> a low fiber diet um, yes. whatever you know and they obviously and then they have some incidental scan of the head because they've um, you know like this woman with the hypothetical woman they have an accident or some, some mm -hmm. other reason and they discover what is in fact quite a mild um, form of it and it possibly doesn't have, have, any, have any real clinical impact on them uh, versus there are people out there like the child you looked after mm. who needed to have um, brain surgery because it was such such a severe form of this condition. Yes. So we're going to try and figure out which uh, who which group they fall into as to you know, how we would manage them. Yeah, so Dr. Garley um, has an eponymous score yeah. named after him and uh, it's, it's, it's quite instructive because it uh, looks at four elements within a patient. The first one is the, um, whether the patient's symptomatic or not. Yep. It looks at the What are symptoms? What sort of symptoms would they have? So um, firstly, uh, neurological symptoms from long tracks like uh, we weakness, yep. sensory changes, yep. uh, atrophy of muscles, yep. um, changes in pain and temperature yep. sensation, in uh, the upper and lower limbs, and then um, th uh, symptoms affecting uh, cranial nerves like diplopia nystagmus. Yep, so double vision or um, with their eyes flicker. Mm -hmm. And yeah. also um, posterior uh, neck pain type symptoms. Yeah, so headachey, neck, occipital headachey type mm. things. Yep. Mm. Keep going. And what's the next criteria? So the next one's the, the next radiology criteria one. is a radiological yeah. um, criteria which describes the degree of herniation of the tonsils yep. below the foramen magnum, and uh, the presence or absence of greater than, or yep. sorry, uh, less than or equal to one centimetre or ten millimetres worth of descent. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> when the descent is less than um, ten millimetres, it's yep considered less significant than when the descent is more than 10 yeah okay millimeters so or 10 millimeters or more yep yep um so so if you if so i guess if you want to try and um score someone you if you get referred someone you really want to be able to have access to their imaging exactly yep so when you do get a call from someone uh a woman's in labor can i put an epidural in it's hard if you don't have access to the imaging yeah. to provide um any Good advice. Good advice. Yeah. Even if they are fully asymptomatic and not known to have any other problems. That's right. But the other two problems are presence or absence of dilatation of the um, 
central canal. Yeah, the syringomyelia that we're talking about. Or bulbia. So syringomyelia is involved, the central canal in the spinal cord, and syringobulbia is um, dilatation in the brainstem, that central area within the brainstem. And so, of course, you need neuroimaging for that as well. Yeah, that's right. To make that... um, to, to make that a discriminatory feature of um, providing care for those patients. Yeah, so ideally I think in summary, to, in order to adequately answer the question of, of how how high risk are these patients, you don't really want to get a phone call the morning that they're getting induced or while they're in labour. This sort of question needs to be sorted out antenatally. Yes. Um, because they probably need, you know, if they've had a, some imaging that was five years ago, it's probably not current. So you probably want to know what's going on in their brain yes. before they come into theatre to have their caesarean or, or a label to have their baby. Yep. And so an MRI, brain yeah. and spinal cord, yep. is ideal to uh, have that you can refer to. Yeah, and to clarify what's going on and come up with a safe plan. Yep. Um, yeah, so that's good. So I'll, we'll put a link to that paper and um, or maybe I'll screenshot the... Um, the flow chart that he that he's provided because I know that you've you've used it in the past whenever you get mm. asked for advice, don't you, Graham? So mm. um, I didn't know that existed, so that's really useful. Um, and basically, if you score, if you say yes to any of those, you start thinking uh, it sounds like it's not a good idea to put a needle in their back. Yes. Um, there is a large. I think this condition is becoming more of an issue because you know as modern medicine advances and there's more MRIs around and people are getting more imaging. We're identifying a lot more people who would have gone through their whole life without ever knowing that they had a very mild form of this condition. And so now there's all these people out there who have quite mild anulcari malformations who are who are mentioning it when they come to, to have their babies. Yes. That would never have known about before. No. And that's I was talking to a neurosurgeon who I do a back, uh, who only stows for for a backlist, and he, he said, without a doubt, that's true. Mm. <clears throat> I think there's a paper that you um, uh, showed me where one in five of the patients yeah. from a series were um, discovered or were completely asymptomatic yeah. and with their Arnold Chiari And presumably, most of them would have all had just normal treatment, so they would have all got epidurals if they wanted one yes. or a spinal if they came to theatre, and um, yeah, we wouldn't have known any better because we hadn't, uh, hadn't done an MRI. So, hmm. um, so, right, so I was going to talk a little bit about MRI safety yeah. In pregnancy, and should we uh, do that another? Should we do that another time? Yeah, we could. <laughs> <laughs> Just cut you I off, don't think I? there's too much to say, other than um, is it safe? Uh, yes, it's thought to be okay. safe, particularly when you're not looking at the fetus. When you're looking at other um, right other it can structures, warm, it can warm up structures, can't it? Can it, it can cause warm, heating. It can it can cause heating. Yeah, um, it's a loud, noisy. Yep. kind of procedure and some patients get claustrophobic. Yeah, so that's, that's pretty important. It I've is. had an MRI. Have you had one? No. Yeah, it's pretty loud. Mm. Yeah. And claustroph- it's quite claustrophobic. I was okay, but um, I could see how if you didn't like narrow spaces, it would be pretty intimidating. Yes. I thought I was going to be fine. It was only of my ankle, but they put my whole body in. I was like, <laughs> what are we doing here? <laughs> oh, it's no good if you've got a ferrometallic uh, implant in your body either. That's true. Yeah. Yep. Or if um, or if someone wanders into the room with an oxygen cylinder. Yeah, that's not, not safe <laughs> at all. Make sure you're wearing a bike helmet mm. or actually a motorcycle helmet. Yes. Um, we got distracted. A little, a little. Okay, so there's one last paper we want to talk about, mm-hmm. which is the uh, from um, 
International Journal of Obstetric Anesthesia, a good, great, um, I know the editor, it's a good journal. Yes. He's actually been on the podcast. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Yes. <laughs> um, so this one was published in 2019, and um, it describes the anesthetic management. It's basically just an observational description of real-world patients with anal carry malformation who um, had babies, and they just, they've just uh, managed to gather together all of these patients and describe what sort of anesthetics they had and what sort of outcomes they had, and w- were there any complications. And I think um, they managed to find just under 150 patients who had uh, 185 babies, um, and you know, 80, uh, 80 of them had vaginal deliveries, um, of which 78% of them actually received epidurals, by the looks of it. Mm-hmm. And then 105 of them had caesareans, of which 67% of them had um, some form of uh, regional anaesthetic in the back, you know, pre- presumably a spine or a CSC or an epidural. Uh, and then a third of them uh, had general anaesthesia. So so certainly a much higher rate of general anaesthesia, so obviously some people weren't happy to put needles in the backs of some of, the, of uh, these patients, whether that was the anaesthetist feeling uncomfortable because that was a condition they weren't familiar with or... It, or they were somehow triage is more severe form or a combination of the two. It's hard to know. This is all that's just descriptive, so we don't really know what it, when, what it means. When I read the paper, they <coughs> didn't have all the information yeah. uh, necessarily before they provided anaesthetic care. Yep. Um, but I think if you took like a snapshot of the of the real world, less than, you know, I think it's 3 or 4% of patients who have general anaesthesia for caesareans. That's correct. So 32%. General anaesthesia rate is pretty high. It's pretty high. So there's obviously some reluctance at certain times to do a spinal or a neuraxial. Yeah, but having right. said that, and this study was from this study was from the US, not from uh, yeah, that's right. A Over setting where GA cesarean is uh, more yeah, that's right. Uh, so this commonly was, used. Right. Yeah, and this was between 2004 and 2017. Mm. Um, so what did they find? So three patients had dural punctures. So presumably that's with or postural puncture headaches. Uh, one patient had an aspiration pneumonia because they had a GA. And it doesn't talk about anyone having any serious neurological events like um, brain stem herniation or you know irreversible sort of extension of syrinxes causing sort of you know, like stroke type symptoms. Mm. I don't think they found any of those today. No, no. And so they, uh, they uh, advocated for an individualised approach yeah, to the care of the patient. Which is um, probably the pragmatic approach to that. So so the devil's in the detail. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if someone has got an Arnold Chiari malformation but they are asymptomatic, they don't have a syrinx and it's less than a centimetre, um, it might be okay to, to put a needle in their back, I guess. The risk of uh, like a, uh, doing a spinal anaesthetic with a very small sprotty needle you know that's unlikely to cause massive um, loss of CSF and a big gradient so it's probably pretty safe I mm. think most of us would consider that for, for if they were coming to theatre for a procedure yeah. um, what about a 16 gauge TUI needle causing a massive big hole which is going to cause a heap of fluid to drain out that's a bit more nerve wracking mm. so if you do decide to offer them an epidural for pain relief and labour you probably want to be really careful because I guess you can you can never say never, but you you do know that um, you know you probably want to use it like that, get an experienced person to put it in because they do have experienced anaesthetists do have lower rates of accidental dural puncture, 
and you know you probably want to put it in when they're not thrashing around and screaming and moving maybe do it nice and when they're nice and calm mm. what do you reckon i agree and even look at the um look at the imaging if you can you'll yeah. have an idea of the depth to the space uh, yeah. you'll have a an idea of the um, degree of curvature yep. at the level and have a discussion with the patient too mm. so that they know you know because you've got to you, we, we tell everyone when we do an epidural there's a risk of jaw puncture headache but you've got to run it past them yes so get some buy-in from them because then if it does happen and they do something does happen you know you've talked to them about it which could be tricky because then they may say, oh, I don't want it. But yes. then they get into well-established labour and they're in agony and they change their mind, which then means it's a bit harder to put it in in a calm manner. Mm. <laughs> Turn the Cento off, get someone else to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, no hard and fast answers there for everyone, sorry. No. But in an ideal world, you have the opportunity to discuss <coughs> it with the patient before yep. they ever uh, are in labour. Yep. Mm. And... Uh, just from my personal observation of cases that have come through hospitals I've worked at, you know, we have both, you know, sometimes we have not done it and sometimes we have mm. offered epidurals. I don't know personally of any cases that have gone, or caused any serious, neuro, had any serious neurological problems, but I guess the potential is there, so you, you, we need to be careful. Yeah, we can also consult with the neurosurgeons yeah. if required. Yep. What did the neurosurgeon that you spoke with last week um, generally um, <laughs> suggest with regards to these patients well first of all he was a bit confused uh, as why well. I was worried about it um, yeah. I don't think he'd ever thought about it to be honest so I put him on the spot mm. <laughs> um, don't you hate it when someone answers their own questions I do um <laughs> 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 Rick Astley will let you borrow any movie from his Pixar collection except one. He's never going to give you up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We should probably move on. Um. Beautiful. <laughs> oh, I was going to mention, because um, this is like an obscure, fairly, fairly uncommon condition. So there's a website called Orphan Anesthesia which is uh, run by the German Society of Anesthesiology. Uh, so Orphan, O-R-P-H-A-N, Anesthesia, which I think doesn't have an A. I'm not sure. I can't remember the German spelling. But anyway, if you look at that, that is basically a website which is uh, run. It's a project from the European, a European project um, where it describes, it has you know, um, summaries of the evidence for how to safely give anesthesia to people with unusual or rare conditions uh, which that's really useful so it's a bit like when I was studying for my exam we used to look at um, the textbook called Stolting which was anesthesia for, for rare conditions I think it was the title um, but this is a more sort of modern version um, and most of it, it's all in English uh, and so I just thought I'd throw that out there funnily enough there is there is no uh, there is nothing for Arnold Chiari malformation <laughs> <laughs> which seems strange as this is a topic for the podcast, but, maybe, maybe but it actually has hundreds of um, different conditions. So if anyone out there, you know, you get you get a phone call uh, from an obstetrician, or uh, or if you're just giving anaesthesia for uh, other surgical specialties and you've never heard of it, have a look at it because it's quite useful. Maybe it's too common. It could be. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. All right. I haven't got anything else of value to say. Should we wrap it up? 
well, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we do. Uh, just one, one nod to the um, the fact that I did put a poll on the website, and um, we've never really uh, evaluated what people have asked for and uh, answered it. So uh, we are going to do that, aren't we, Graham? Yes, we are. <laughs> I'm going to have a look. There's some silly suggestions. We might skip those. Yes. Um, but we I think but there, there are some. There are some interesting ones. So there was um, some people wanted to know about anesthesia induction drugs for GA seizures. Uh, and the different adjuvants and evidence for and against that will probably take us a bit of time to look yeah, at. Look at those occupy some time. Um, and we have. I am working uh, on a project with uh, some of our um, fellows, doing some uh, podcasts for um, uh, sort of aimed at like part two level um, teaching for anesthesia trainees. And on one of those, we did do a, which we haven't published yet, but we will eventually get around to it. Uh, we did do a podcast on GA. Um, for cesarean sections and we did talk, touch on that as a topic mm. alright we'll wind it up there because we've gone for 28 minutes which is way too long I should have gone for probably about 20 minutes everyone's probably parked the car and walked inside till <laughs> gone inside to work now and they've turned us off so <laughs> they missed out on my shit jokes yeah no, they were funny <laughs> okay thanks again Graham yeah no Cheers. worries Bye. pleasure thanks Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandguinecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.